0: Well, if you have a Bible, please open up uh, to Isaiah 52. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, it's on page 613. We're coming to a very favorite passage of Scripture. Now, we love asking people about their favorite things. Even as a kid, you grew up asking them, hey, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite this or that? And we often, even today, as adults, love favorite things. We have that favorite movie or show that we go back and watch over and over again when we need a pick me up. We schedule our weeks around our favorite football teams or baseball teams, and we kind of plan our days accordingly to when they're playing. You have your, maybe your favorite restaurants. When you have people coming into town here, you take them to your favorite place, and you get your favorite dish. We live in and around our favorite things. Well, one of the most favorite chapters in all of the Bible, and all church history, is Isaiah 53 that we're studying today. This is a passage that people go back to Time and time again, and it might seem strange that Christians would say this, but many have said Isaiah 53 is the greatest chapter in the Old Testament. Many also say Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the New Testament. And now we at CVBC, we as evangelical Christians believe every single word of the Bible is inspired and valuable, and it's true. But Isaiah 53 is the most clear, powerful, powerful, gospel-rich passage in the Old Testament. As you get to the New Testament, you're going to see how often the New Testament is citing or alluding to or quoting Isaiah 53. And this passage was written 600 years before Jesus even was born. And yet how clear and vivid it is talking about the Messiah, how He's going to come and die for the sins of the world. So just like a movie you re-watch a lot, Isaiah 53 is one of those chapters that I would encourage you to revisit a lot. As we're going to work through this, you're going to see we actually just sang a song that very much quotes much of Isaiah 53. But here we have a clear, a powerful, emotional account of Jesus. Now we're working through the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters And mostly we've been spending time looking at a 10,000 foot view zoomed out. We're going to zoom in a little bit more today and just look at the end of 52 into 53. And then I believe we only have three more sermons after today through Isaiah. But if you look down in your Bibles, we're going to start reading in chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through chapter 53. This is the word of the Lord. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and by His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help your word dwell richly in our hearts this morning, that we may love you and know you more. Spirit, help us. Amen. Not only is this chapter full of great, rich gospel content and words, it's also organized in a very beautiful way. And I think it's also why Isaiah 53 is considered one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. See, the wonderful thing about the Bible is it's not just the vocabulary and the words that God inspired but also its structure in its passages God inspired. So I want you to look at the screen real quick. I want to point this out to you. This is the passage we just read, and yet as you see throughout your own Bible translation, there are five gaps. There's five sections, five stanzas, five paragraphs throughout Isaiah 52 to 53 that we just read. It's almost like Isaiah wants us in each one of these sections or stanzas or paragraphs to see something about Jesus. So picture Isaiah holding up a diamond. And he can spin that diamond around to show you each face of that diamond. It's all one big diamond, but it's got little faces on it with different reflections of light in each face. They're different shapes, different sizes. They're not all exactly the same. We're just kind of looking at all the diamond. That's what Isaiah is doing here with with Jesus. And there's five things he wants us to see about Jesus here. You know, the first part is about his exaltation, then how he is despised, he's humiliated, he's innocent and holy, he's victorious. All this about Jesus kind of crammed and packed into one beautiful poem. But what's really cool is that in Hebrew poetry, especially here in Isaiah 53, Isaiah plants plants the big idea in the middle of the text. In Hebrew poetry, if there's five stanzas, five paragraphs, the middle stanza, so stanza three, paragraph three is the most important stanza. It's put there in the middle for emphasis, right? You're climbing a mountain, one, two, you get to the peak at paragraph three, and then everything flows out of paragraph three down into four and five. So whatever's in the middle section is the most important, and that's chapter 53, verses four to six talking about the humiliation of Jesus. That's what Isaiah wants us to look at with our eyes. But it gets even nerdier than that. Hang on. In that middle section, verses 4 to 6, there are 12 lines. 12 lines. So if you go to the middle of those 12 lines, you see the crux of the gospel message. Isaiah wants us to zoom in on Isaiah 53, 4-6, to six, but more specifically, two phrases in the middle of that section. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Isaiah does not just write beautiful poetry about Jesus, but he organizes it in such a way that our eyes are going to go right to the middle, and that's where the middle is. He wants to serve us on a plate of rich gospel, and even how we organize it poetically is there. Now, I mentioned that for a couple reasons. One, it's always good to see how we can study and read the Bible and pick up on things more. But second of all, because this is what the main point of the passage is, Isaiah served it to us saying, here's the point. And here is the point of the sermon and the point of the passage. It's only through the humiliation of Jesus that we find salvation. It's only through the humiliation of Jesus that we find salvation. Isaiah says he was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised. And yet it is through the crushing, it is through the chastisement that we find peace, that we find salvation. Only in the rejection of Jesus, only in the suffering of Jesus, only in the death of Jesus can we find true, utter life and rescue. That's Isaiah 53. And this is who Isaiah is describing the servant, the saving servant to be. Because up to this point in Isaiah, he's painting this picture of judgment, painting this picture of fear of enemies. And the people are asking, who's our Messiah going to be? Who's going to come in and conquer enemies? Who's going to come in and forgive our sins? Who's going to come in and make things right with God? And this picture here that he paints that we just read is what no one could have ever come up with this. If you were in the people of God, you would not think that your Messiah would be brought under chastisement. And yet this is who Isaiah pictures and prophesies about. If you are taking notes, I want each point to be one of those three words we underlined, humiliation, Jesus, and salvation. So I want to begin by looking at the humiliation of Jesus. When we say humiliation today, we often mean absolute embarrassment. Right? You fail or you make a mistake or you do something silly, you might say, I am totally embarrassed. But when we say the humiliation of Jesus, we don't mean that he did something silly or he made a mistake or he failed. We mean that Jesus absolutely put his humility on display by enduring rejection and suffering and slander and beatings and death. And Isaiah describes his humiliation throughout this text in many phrases here, and he's describing a future event. Isaiah is 600 years before Jesus, and yet he's prophesying specifically about what Jesus is going to endure. Look at chapter 52, verse 14. As many were astonished or shocked at you, Jesus' appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He's prophesying that Jesus, the Messiah, will be so beaten, so violently opposed and afflicted that those who are within his vicinity would find his appearance shocking. He was flogged with the whip, slapped, spit on, had to carry a tree and then hang on that tree. And his body received all of this humiliation. So if you're going to be a friend of Isaiah at this time, 600 years before Jesus, and Isaiah says, hey, I know about our Messiah. Our Messiah is going to be spit on. He's going to be beaten so badly that you won't even want to be near him. You would laugh at Isaiah because you would picture, no, no, the the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be beautiful. He's going to be strong. He's going to be popular. He's going to be everything we want to be. And then Isaiah is saying, nope. He's going to be so rejected. Look at verse 3 of chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was despised. He was hated. He was found detestable. People would see him and hear him and they would utterly cast him off, ignore him. Isaiah gives him the title here. In verse 3, as a man of sorrows, he is described and defined more by his pain and his rejection than anything else. And As we see in the main verses, verses 4 to 6, the humiliation of Jesus is on deeper display. He was pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquities, chastised. He had wounds. The iniquity, the sin of the world was laid upon him. Think of those words, to be crushed to be fully under the weight of sin, and you can do nothing about it. Or look at verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He was like a lamb being led out to be killed. The Messiah is being described and compared to a farm animal on slaughter day. And this passage in Isaiah 53 mostly just focuses on the death and the last day of Jesus' life. But if you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Gospels, you're going to see that Jesus was the man of sorrows his entire life, not just here. He suffered hunger and thirst. He mourned the loss of a friend Lazarus. He wept. He had social and emotional distress. He was tempted aggressively by Satan. He faced suffering after suffering his entire life, and this is just the climax of it. He is the man of sorrows. He's the king of the world, the Savior, and he faced humiliation. He was humbled. He endured hardship after hardship. And yet he's the one who came to serve us and to rid us of our sins. But why is this humiliation? Why is talking about suffering and death and Jesus being spit on even important for us today? Why can Jesus just not come to earth and live in comfort? Well, I want to mention there's two reasons why the humiliation of Jesus is necessary for you and also why why it's encouraging for you. Number one, his humiliation was an act of substitution for you. His humiliation, his suffering, his death, all that he endured was an act of substitution for you because when Jesus died, When Jesus carried a cross, when Jesus was spit on and flogged, he endured that because you were on his mind and on his heart. You, yes, you personally were on the heart of Jesus as he endured the cross. Look at verse 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. When the Messiah Jesus died, he died a substitutionary death. When he died, he stepped up to die in our place. He took our sin, our evil deeds, our rebellion, our wickedness, our resistance to God, our ignoring of God, and that all crushed him on the cross. He did not just physically die, though he did, but he also was bearing the spiritual and holy wrath of God. He took both the physical and the spiritual effects of our sin, and he took it to the grave. And he had to because God cannot just put up with sin. God, by his nature and his existence, can't allow sin to happen without justice. He can't look the other way or he would stop being God. So God asked us, You take care of your own sin, you will face the just punishment of our sin and we would be separated from the presence of God after we die. And yet Jesus came, sent by the Father, to be a substitute so that we don't have to endure hell or condemnation. Because if Jesus did not bear the cross with our sin and the wrath of God, then we would have to bear the weight of our own sin, and we would be crushed by our own sin before God. We would have to pay the consequences and the punishment and be cast from the good and beautiful and glorious presence of God. But Jesus walked up the hill carrying a cross with us on his heart and mind, substituting himself in our place so that we don't have to bear it and be crushed under our own guilt and our shame. He did it out of love, out of an overflowing love for us. He was humiliated for us. And this picture is what caused Isaac Watts, the beautiful hymn writer, to write this lyric, "'See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love commingled down.'" As Jesus walked, carrying the cross, as he received the spit of the mockers, as he took nails into his hands, as his family rejected him, as he breathed his last breath on a criminal's cross, he did it for you in your place. He died a substitutionary death. He was humiliated and he bore your sin so you don't have to. That's the first reason why this is all necessary. But the second reason is this. His humiliation drives His intercession for you. If you are a Christian, the days where Jesus went physically hungry and the moments where He was rejected by His family, rejected by His friends, the moments where He was tempted aggressively by sin, these moments should be encouraging to you today. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin if you've believed in Jesus, if you're a Christian, then right now, in this very moment, Jesus is what we call interceding on your behalf before God the Father. He's praying for you is what intercession means. He's going to God the Father on your behalf to give you comfort and encouragement. He's going to God the Father affirming your identity in Christ Right now, Jesus, the creator of the world, the Messiah, is interceding on your behalf if you're a Christian. And what makes this suffering and humiliation so encouraging is that Jesus can do this authentically and with love for you. Why? Because he endured and faced everything in life that you've endured and will face. Jesus is not just some comfortable king in the heavens looking down at you, the common people, saying, oh, they have a rough life, whatever, I'm here, I'm distant from them. No, Jesus came down and became a common person. He became us, and he endured sickness, and he endured loss, he endured pain, he endured all of these things on our behalf. So now when He's in heaven and we are struggling and we're tempted by sin and we are in trouble, we have a friend, an advocate, interceding for us who knows what it's like, who has felt it, and He has conquered it. Dane Ortlund, in his book Gentle and Lowly, says this, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel... There, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, is with us, solidarity. Jesus, who suffered, suffers with us as a friend, as an advocate, as the one who cares for us. The man of sorrows is with us in our sorrows. I talked to our brother Jeff Johnson this week on the phone, and Jeff is um, routinely receiving chemo and radiation for his cancer. And he's describing how he sits in his chair and he's getting, you know, this medicine pumped into his body, and he can look around and see other patients, other friends receiving the same treatment. Not only is that a sad sight, but also that's an encouraging sight because he's sitting there in a chair receiving treatment feeling sick, and yet he has all these people around him shoulder to shoulder who are enduring it too, and it gives him hope, it gives him strength that he's not suffering alone, but he's suffering with others who can tell him to stay positive and to look up. Because I've not had cancer. I can encourage Jeff, I can pray for Jeff, but I don't know what it feels like to walk out of a chemo treatment. Some of you do, and you can uniquely minister and care for Jeff and other brothers and sisters, but their sense of solidarity, when you've experienced the same thing, you can then join them and encourage them in a unique way. We have a recovery ministry here that's so great, and they recognize that coming together with a shared struggle actually gives them strength and hope and solidarity. And that's why we often talk about belonging to a local church, to coming here and shouldering one another's burdens, not living this sorrowful, hard life alone, but coming alongside of each other, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, getting involved in small groups and friendships, being present for one another. Why? That's a way that we demonstrate that Jesus is present with us in our lows and in our highs. Because our God is not distant and outside of our realm, but our God came in to face the exact struggles and troubles and circumstances that we face every single day. Jesus endured what we've endured. He's been rejected by people he loved. Jesus, our Messiah, he was afflicted with temptation from Satan himself. Jesus endured pain. And He did it all for us. And He is caring for us every step of the way. So He is qualified to serve us and to advocate for us and to intercede for us because He Himself was humiliated. And He's our friend. So His humiliation should be encouraging to you. But second of all, I want to look at something very specific about Jesus in this passage. We just saw his suffering, the physical acts that are going to happen to him. But also in Isaiah 53, something about Jesus, one of his attributes is proclaimed loudly. His innocence, his holiness, his righteousness. And this may not be new information to you, but it's still a surprising truth that the one who suffered on a criminal's cross never broke a law. The one who was rejected by man is the one who came to pursue man. The one who was crushed under sin never actually committed a sin. This is the picture of Jesus. He's innocent. Look at verses 7 and 9. 7 through 9. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgments he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah describes that Jesus was afflicted and suffered. He was slandered against. He died, and yet he deserved not one bad thing. It mentions at the end of verse 9 that he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He had no lies, no gossip, no broken promises ever came out of his lips. And elsewhere in the Bible, it says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. One of the ways that we know to test someone's purity or to evaluate where they're at in life, you can often just use your ears and listen to what they say. What comes out of our mouth comes from our heart. And when you listen to every word that Jesus ever spoke, if you were there listening every second of his life, you would hear nothing but purity and truth and love from his mouth because his heart was perfect and pure. There's no deceit in his mouth. He was innocent. And also throughout this chapter it mentions he suffered not for his own sins but the sins of the world not his own wrongdoing but the transgression of the people it was our iniquities that crushed him not his own he committed no sin and yet he received all the consequence but the shocking thing to me this week is that in this verses it mentions twice twice in verse 7 the silence of jesus In verse 7, it says, In his affliction he opened not his mouth. And then, later on, like a sheep, he opened not his mouth. How often do you and I try to become our own defense lawyers? Right, something goes wrong. We get in trouble. We offend someone. We forget to pick up our kids from school on time. What do we do? We justify our mistake. We don't sit back and say, you're right. We step up and say, we speak out. We give excuses. We shift our blame to other people or circumstances or to traffic. We dump our wrongdoings onto other things and other people rather than own up. right, the classic story, right, the peer pressure story is Kid gets in trouble and the mom says, why did you do that? Well, my friends told me to do it. I went with my friends. Well, would you follow your friends if they jumped off a bridge? But we as a kid automatically say, instead of saying, yes, I messed up, we say, no, but my friends made me do it. We shift the blame. We want to say, it's not just me. I did nothing wrong. Or we say, hey, at least I'm better than that person over there. We love to defend ourselves. But of all the humans... Whoever walked on this earth, only Jesus could honestly and truthfully and purely speak up when he was accused of wrongdoing and say, nope, it was not me. Jesus could have shifted the blame onto everyone else and it had been true. Right? Lies were spread about him. He was slandered, ridiculed, gossiped, verbally abused. And yet this passage says Jesus was silent. He did not open His mouth. He stayed silent, though He did not deserve what those words said. He did not deserve the punishment and the suffering, yet He stayed silent out of submission for your salvation. The silence of Jesus in the face of suffering is for our redemption. Jesus was silent in the face of the cross so we could be set free. He could have said, I won't suffer, I won't take the cross, I don't deserve it, and He would have been right. But this is not Jesus. He silently submitted to this out of love because He's the only one who could save us. You see, a man, any mortal man... Dying for you on the cross is not enough for you to be saved. A mere sinful man like me, I can stand up here and say, I'm going to die on the cross for the sins of the world, but I will fail. Why? Because I am sinful and I cannot even bear my own sin and save myself from my sin. I am condemned to hell because of my sin. I can't even save myself, right? If you're cleaning a dirty, greasy dish at home and you grab a dirty, greasy rag or sponge, you're not going to clean that, that dish. You can't clean something with two dirty things. I am a dirty rag before God. I can't save other dirty rags. We need something pure and something clean to come in, and that is Jesus. It's because He was innocent, and He was holy, and He was righteous that His death on a cross actually delivers you from something. He is holy. He is God. And God demands justice. God demands sin to go punished. And Jesus is the only sacrificial lamb available. He's the only one that can forever free us because He has no stain no sin, no wickedness. He can take all of our sin and he can present himself to God as a true substitute because he is unlike us. We are unholy, but he is holy. A, me, a mere sinful man can't say, I will die for the world because I am the world. I am sinful. We need someone outside of us to save and deliver and forgive us. And that's Jesus. And that's why he says, That's why Hebrews says, He became sin who knew no sin. My sin, your sin, our sin, was then given, imputed, transferred to Jesus. But that's not it. If all Jesus did was die for us and forgive us, then we aren't actually fully saved. We would just be neutral, Like Adam and Eve were in Genesis 2. Not only does Jesus forgive us because he's holy and innocent and pure, but Jesus then gives us his holiness and innocence and purity. He doesn't just give you a clean slate, rather, all of his pure words, his pure acts, are all given to us and credited to our account. So as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see the beautiful and kind words Jesus speaks, or you see the good deeds that He does, His pure heart, all of that is now in your spiritual bank account because Jesus doesn't just wipe away your sin and debt. He then gives you all of His righteousness. You're not just a clean slate when you come to Christ. You are given a clean slate, and then that clean slate is replaced with Jesus' slate. So when God sees you, He sees the righteousness and holiness of Jesus. You are clothed in Him, all because He silently suffered and submitted. Because He submitted to a death He didn't deserve. He did that so you could be forgiven. He did that so you could be considered righteousness. He justified you. You are innocent and forgiven as a daughter or son of God. See, this Jesus is not just some example, not just some philosopher, not just some good moral teacher. He is holy. He is God. He lived perfectly. He suffered and died a death He didn't deserve. He took on your sin and gave you His righteousness. As Isaiah 53, 8 says, He was cut off so that you could be brought in. His humiliation brought you salvation. But Christian, what do you do with this? You've been saved already. If you're a Christian, you've been saved. You've heard this gospel before, but there's two things I think you should do with this gospel message today. I think some of you need to hear this, especially the first one. Let the silent suffering of Jesus speak louder than the false condemnations within you. Let the silence. Of Jesus speak louder than the false condemnations within you. Do you ever feel like you can sin your way out of a relationship with Jesus? Do you ever feel like you are unworthy of this abundant love of Jesus? Do you look at things in your past or in your present and you wonder, how could God ever look down on me and actually smile? Christian, are you ever fearful of dying and being rejected? By God in heaven. And you need to let the silent suffering of Jesus on the cross speak louder to you than those false condemnations. If you have turned to Jesus for salvation, then you are clothed in Him because He suffered for you. Despite that lie or that lust or that gossip or that pride or that trauma or that thing you did years ago that you can't seem to forget, that inadequacy, that unworthiness you feel, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Let that speak louder to you than everything else. He silently suffered for you so that you could stand before God as a beloved son or daughter. But Christian, the second thing you should do with this gospel message today is let the silent suffering of Jesus encourage you when you are faced with suffering or sin. When Jesus saves us, He makes us into a new man, a new woman. We are no longer a sinner we're also not perfect yet. We're going to struggle with sin and hardships in life, yet we're a new creation with our eyes and our hearts fixed on God. We will face temptations, we will face circumstances, but we can now do them with Christ in mind. So when you are tempted to sin next, today, tomorrow, every single day, look at that temptation with Jesus on your mind. Jesus already paid the penalty for those sins. As he carried that cross, it was that sin on his back. That's what pierced his hands. Remind yourselves of the past that it is done and it's not worth going back to. But even when you face trials and hardships in life, even things out of your control, circumstances that come in, think of Christ, the man of sorrows. For example, think of Maybe you've been at a point in your life, maybe now, where you constantly are being wronged in life by someone. Maybe you have a family member or a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor who always appears to be against you. They complain about you, gossip about you, lie about you, seek to do you harm emotionally. They're always out to get you. How can you reflect the silent suffering of Christ to them? Maybe you can stop seeking that person's approval who hurts you and start basking in the delight that God has for you. Maybe you can choose to pray for their spiritual good rather than allow bitterness to swell up in you. Can you, in the midst of their bad intentions, seek to do them good? This is hard, but that is Christianity. Now, I want to clearly say this at the same time. God is a God of justice and a God who cares for the hurting. So if you were ever threatened threatened, or abused, or in harm's way by someone, we're not asking you to be silent in that moment. We're asking you in that moment to speak out. Don't be silent. Find someone here. Find someone you trust. We will stand against abuse and violence and threatening and hurt. This is a safe place, a safe church. But you have to determine, in many of your other circumstances in life, with relational problems or problems at work or uh, job stress or sicknesses, in those times of suffering, you have to figure out how can I imitate Jesus here? Because one of the benefits as being a Christian is that we don't have to join in on the world's complaining and bitterness. Our world is full of that, of bitterness and complaining, and yet Jesus suffered without complaining, without bitterness. He kept His mouth shut and we can live in such this beautiful way, we can live in such a way to be a light to the community around us because people do watch us and they will pick up on how we suffer. We can be a light to those at work in our neighborhood, those in Chippewa Falls, those in Eau Claire, we can be a light to them by showing them that we can be content in Christ and not have to have the last word. I want to finish briefly by talking about what we've already talked about for the last half hour and that's salvation. Look at verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The Lord did not stay dead, but as it says in verse ten, that he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, he shall prosper in the hand of the Lord. That means Jesus resurrected. He did not stay dead. He was successful in redemption. He took sin to the grave and he resurrected conquering life. And now at the end of verse 11, this can be you if you're not a Christian. You can be accounted righteous. He can bear your iniquities. I pray for you today. If you are not a Christian, maybe you have doubts and you have questions and we welcome those here. We do. But I think at the end of the day, You have to determine, are you going to bear the weight of your own sin or are you going to allow Jesus to do that? Are you going to be crushed by your sin or you let Jesus? And Jesus is asking you today for this to be the day of salvation where you trust in Him and your sin will be removed from you as far as the east is from the west and you will be accounted righteous, a dearly loved, forgiven, clothed in Christ child. Today is a day of salvation and all that means practically is that you have to be honest with yourself with your sin. And you tell Jesus, you don't have to walk an aisle, you don't have to sign a card, you have to come up here by yourself, even alone with God in your heart and in your mind, telling Him that you have sin and you can't deal with it on your own and you need Jesus. You believe He's your only Savior and if you do that or you have questions or doubts or you're curious please find someone someone you came with someone you're sitting next to come up someone come and see someone you've been seeing up top here whatever it is but today is the day of salvation and we are going to look no further than the man of sorrows who was crushed for our iniquities who the chastisement of us all was put upon Him, we find peace in Him because by His wounds we are healed. And we would love for you to join in this congregation of people who've gone from sinners to being redeemed, not because we are anything special, but because Jesus is. And that's why we sing, Jesus, Messiah, name above all names. And that name is Jesus, the man of sorrows, the Lamb of God, the one crushed for our sin. What a sweet name we get to praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to save us. That upon him, the chastisement of the world was, was there. That he was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we have peace. Lord, let us sing out with joy, that that is true of us as children of God, that you, God, would declare us and see us as righteous. What a blessing. Jesus, we love you. In his name we pray. Amen.